0: Living Room Logic. So hello, everyone. Uh, Welcome back to another episode of Living Room Logic. And today I have the pleasure to talk to Dr. Samantha Dockray. She's a senior lecturer in the Department of Applied Psychology. And I actually know her because she was a lecturer of mine in a module I took called The Biological Basis of Behaviour, which was actually where I was first introduced to sex differences in biology and in the neurosciences and in psychology, which has kind of become the entire basis of my research career. So uh, but the reason I really wanted to talk to her was because she does a lot of brilliant work looking at stress and how we can each be exposed to a stress but have completely different reactions and there's something which I'm sure she'll go into with things called allostatic loading and the diasthesis stress framework the idea that one individual can be different to another with a vulnerability and be exposed to the same stressors and have completely different reactions and completely different long-term effects. So just to crack into this, if that's at all accurate. Uh, Why did you get into this field? What was it that kind of attracted you to coming into
1: this? Thanks for the welcome and thanks for having me on, Andrew. I'm often asked this question about how I became interested in in all the things I'm interested in. My answer can vary a bit. (laughs) Actually, but it it kind of stems from, or it has its foundations in work I did um, as a social worker. So before I kind of moved to studying psychobiology and working in this area. I worked as a social worker where I worked with young people, people in late childhood and early adolescence, um, who were no longer able to live in their family homes. And over a couple of years, I noticed that many of them had the same patterns of health, physical health, as well as health behaviors. And, and I also did some consultancy work with people who were at kind of the other end of the lifespan who had a very similar pattern of ill health and health conditions, often with origins in their health behaviors across the life course. And I became really interested in And why were these patterns between most of the people I worked with experienced psychological difficulties and had very poor mental health and started to see at the time what I thought were these patterns between mental health and physical health. And I kind of went down that stream about thinking, well, how how might this happen? where does it originate? Is it a shared kind of pathway that begins in childhood? Is it genetic? Is there something biological that's going on? And so then I went and, and took a, um, a double degree in physiology and psychology to try and work this out. And at the time, that work of kind of psychoneuroendocrinology and psychoneuroimmunology, so the combination of mental processes, physical processes, and experience was just coming to the fore. And And I became fascinated with how People might have an experience in their daily life, so they might experience a small uplift, so something positive happening, or a challenge and how their body would respond to that. So with changes in in heart rate, in blood pressure, and changes in their hormones, and vice versa. At At this process, I was working through this idea of like, should I still stay in social work, which I loved, or would I pursue something that was really fascinating that would present a different kind of challenge? And so then I did what was my master's dissertation or master's equivalent, trying to understand how students who are experiencing examination stress. So I recruited them just as they were um, coming up to their third and final year exams and I monitored their, their heart rate, their blood pressure, their stress hormones and their emotions at a time mid-semester and at a time that they were doing their exams and just did a comparison. And what I noticed was that some people were saying that they were really stressed, but their bodies didn't seem to know it. (laughs) And other people, their bodies were indicating stress and their emotions, they weren't reporting these emotions. So I think that's where the origins of my interest began. And it's just kind of grown and gotten more complex since then.
0: Okay, that's actually really interesting. I didn't know the background around, I didn't know you were a social worker.
1: Yeah. My, sorry, my secret previous life,
0: laugh, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Before you, before you got into where I know you're from. It, yeah. it makes a lot of sense because I suppose there wouldn't be too many places that you'd see it as often like you would as a social worker. Of course, you'd see people in different situations and a lot of people may be in the same situation with completely different outcomes.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I think in order to get a good handle on this and a good handle on stress, I, I think it'd be good to define it. Because when we say stress, it can be things like exams is a good example, like you said, but it can also be quite traumatic. It could be losing somebody or being involved in a really traumatic event, but it can also be watching the Champions League final. You know, in all these moments, you'd say, oh, I'm stressed. But is there a line? Are these like different kinds of stress to worry about? What's How would you define stress in your work?
1: So, stress is just a really handy umbrella term that we've all grown so used to using to actually represent a whole range of emotions and experiences. It's really dulled its original meaning. So, in psychology, we think about stress as being presented with something that exceeds our abilities and resources to cope with that. So if we take that as the definition and we say, so if I'm presented, say, with an examination and I think I've got exams coming up and what are my resources? Do I know how to prepare for those exams? How confident do I feel? Have I negotiated this situation of the exams before? And I can think about those as my, my portfolio or my package of resources to cope with it. It doesn't mean that it's not a stress or what we call a stressor a stress event, something that could cause me stress. But my response to it is driven by my capacities and resources. But stress, you know, when you talk about, I think it was football you mentioned, I'm not a football follower, but I know exactly what you mean. Um, And those things are really about emotional arousal, right, and the investment that you have. So stress is a very handy umbrella term. But if we think about, well, how do we identify the exact emotion that the person is describing? Emotional arousal, excitement, worry, concern that your team may I don't know. I don't know what happens in a soft game, but go to a penalty shootout. It was on in my house, but I, I didn't didn't stand there and watch it. But um, that, um those kinds of things I think, you know, I might say like, oh, I'm really stressed about the game tonight. Is it stress? Does it exceed your ability to cope? No. Does are there lots of high arousal emotions going on? Very likely, but it's not necessarily stress. So the challenge is, um, and this is a really fast, uh, just a kind of current challenge for people who work in the area that I do, psychoneuroendocrinology, is to remind people that stress is a particular thing. When we blur the boundaries of what we mean when we talk about stress, we end up with the situations where everything is described as stressful, every emotional arousal state is described as stress, and it limits our capacity to support people to manage it when it's truly stress. The um, president of the psycho Society, Sonia Lupien, um, a couple of years ago at our conference, our annual conference said, stop it. Let's talk about the positive elements of stress because we think about distress. Ever
2: catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.
1: are bad, are negative, and we think about you stress, which is a positive stress. So when you stretch yourself, when you you push yourself beyond a little bit beyond your boundaries to, to manage the situation, but in a positive way. There's going to be positive outcomes from it. But then you also talked about what I would think about as traumatic or very adverse events. Say, for example, the ones that people might come to mind for people like during childhood. So this might be a range of different things we, we talk about as adverse childhood experiences and might describe those as, as leading to trauma or being traumatic. But people have different responses to those depending on their past experiences, depending on, you know, factors such as personality, on the coping style that that each each of us develop But the way that we cope with stress, which may be around a behavioral response and they can be like positive or negative health behaviors. So we might exercise more or we might change our eating or our sleep or cigarettes or alcohol or those kinds of things. We can biologically respond to it and we see changes in people's metabolism and the way they process calories, the way the cardiovascular system works and so on. And we see it in changes in relationships. And when people have those adversities early in life, it programs people to respond in a particular way with their behaviors, with their emotions and their biology. And there's no way that I'm I can avoid calling that stressful because some situations, even if the person has the has experienced it before and believes they have the capacity to cope, are situations that people shouldn't be in. And and there's no way to avoid calling those stressful and I wouldn't. I would call them Um, adversities, and I would call them traumas. So we need to be, I think, as a discipline, so in psychology and, and psychobiology, much more precise with our language and encourage people to think about the whole range of emotions that one might experience and really to dig into what is the biological processes or consequences of feeling a bit under pressure, not really stressed, but just time crunched, for example, which is a different thing to feeling stressed.
0: Interesting that you said there that stress can be so beneficial and that you need to separate when it's beneficial and when it's not beneficial. But I I can only imagine that gets very complicated because in a trauma where you get this negative stress that impacts your daily life within the trauma, whether it be a childhood adversity, that stress is still helping the person survive the trauma. So it does end up getting quite uh, dynamic, I suppose, where within the situation, yes, it helps survival. But once you're out of the situation, it lingers and it actually lowers your quality of life. So it kind of gets quite complicated because then it becomes, where does this negative aspect of stress meet the positive aspect? It can, maybe you get very stressed running from a tiger and it saves your life. But then once you get into the village, you, you got to chill And maybe you're stuck like that. And (laughs) at that point, it just becomes you're not fitting the social norms or perhaps your body is, even though you're consciously aware of this is just a supermarket, this is just a shop, your body is still going full throttle. And I suppose we all experience it differently and we all have different things like that. But when you dig down to it, what's at an individual level? I feel like some people experience a stress and are fine. And they get up the next day or they go through their exams and they're immediately into summer mode. They're immediately into holiday mode. But other people are burned out. They are exhausted and they can't even enjoy June or July because they're coming down from it. Out of interest, what would be the differences between people that would let people come out of a stress and completely flip how they're responding to it and some people kind of get caught in it when they try to come out into this safer environment or this less stressful environment.
1: Oh I I don't have a really clear Well, I have clear thoughts, but I don't have a very easy answer to that. And and this is I think like why I feel very fortunate to study the work that I do and I find it fascinating is it's psychological, it's biological, it's social, it's your life history and the kinds of things you've experienced before. There's some programmed into us difference in how we respond to things that has its origins even before we're born. So we know that people's stress responses, you know, and the kinds of emotions that they're going to attach to those have its origins in infancy and childhood. Before they're even into, you know, beyond the age of three, those things are are programmed. And they also happen during the fetal programming process. So, so for example, before birth, a fetus can be programmed to be highly stress reactive or moderately stress reactive or low stress reactive, depending on the kinds of input that's coming from the mother and her stress and her life experiences. And teasing that out is one of the biggest challenges, I think, in in for us understanding human health, and I mean psychological and biological health, because people can have the same experiences and have the same supports, the same – environment and hopefully that's a loving and nurturing environment in childhood and adolescence but they may still have different responses to feeling under pressure and how quickly they recover we know a little bit about that we certainly know it's about personality and coping styles i've talked about and how they might train themselves and you know some people are more future oriented so they're more optimistic for example or they may be looking towards you know the summer holiday and what the next thing is they're going to do after the exams and other people are more prone to ruminating worrying about how they performed on the exam, or actually just having a bit of mental and physical exhaustion from being under pressure for that time. And that may be even if they managed to get the required amount of sleep, to eat in a way that supports good health, to do all the right things. Some people will have that. It's not better metabolic ex- exhaustion. It's not, you know, burnout or anything like that, but they just take longer to recover. And we don't know all of the answers as to what determines those individual differences. We do know that those kinds of things are more associated with long-term physical and mental health. Though.
0: Interesting in the sense that you touched on childhood and things like that. I know that you do a lot of work studying times of transition and times like that. And may, maybe I'm, I'm wrong here, but when when we're younger, are we, we're kind of learning how to live a long life as a human essentially. Would that be fair? But if you're going through that period where your body and brain and behavior is trying to form a a balance that will keep you going for the long haul, but you're in that position of stress, would that predispose you and predispose your design from your behavior to your neurocircuitry, all of that to being a fully-fledged adult with the ingrained idea that I'm going to have to behave this way to survive? My body has to be primed in the long haul to do that. Is that fair?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a great summary, actually. Um, do you know the phrasing about, you know, we're learning how to live a, a long and hopefully a happy life. And some people are in situations and the combination of their psychological processes and, and abilities combined with the environment that they're in, unfortunately, don't set them on that long, happy, healthy life. But the learning of response to things. So, there's been some work done to understand how neglect might affect the programming of biological responses to stress and whether or not that's reversible. So, for example, children who um, spent their their early years and and their childhood in orphanages where they were given very little care, you know, and, and without even getting into nutrition and those things, we just think about the psychological or the emotional care that people receive programs their stress responses. It programs their cortisol responses. It programs their cardiovascular responses. And that feeds into how they emotionally respond to things. So so these children who were moved from those orphanages and adopted into families that really wanted them and cared for them and, and, and were very nurturing families, these children had um, biological stress responses that had become, you know, it's like the, setting a thermostat, that they're high responders or they're very low responders. And they moved into new life, life circumstances in the hope that there would be this recovery, and they don't. They don't reset to what we would think about as a as a healthy or an expected coping or biological stress response. There's a period at which things are set, and then it's very difficult to turn the dial back to regular. There are periods of life where there's sensitivity because of the way the brain is developing and the brain is maturing, or periods of psychobiological transition. So we think about what happens when people move from childhood to adolescence, which is defined by age and often by psychosocial change, but it's underpinned by biological change. Someone who's moving from childhood to adolescence is undergoing really, um, really profound change in their abilities to think about the world and think about themselves that's underpinned by changes in the brain. They are experiencing, most of them um, are experiencing puberty and, you know, with the drives in sex steroids that we might think about, but also where there's reprogramming of the biological stress response. So we think about those periods of transition as presenting as a time of vulnerability, but it's a time of opportunity for the resetting of the stress thermostat. But this is not true for everyone. It can be true for most people, but for people who've had, say, serious adversity, the programming happens, and then how do we reset that dial? That's our challenge. Um, And and it kind of consolidates as people move into their, their mid to late 20s where you know all the physical maturation that's going to happen is, has settled down. The brain is fully matured. People are through the process of puberty and all that means, and they're growing into their sense of an adult and how they might manage the, the kinds of things that come up in their life. But we are always carrying with us what happened during our childhood years, what happened during our adolescence. That's the thing that shapes us. We talk about this so much in psychology about the meaning and the narrative that we have about our life and and how it's made us who we are. We should be doing the same thing in biology, in psychobiology, and thinking like, well, why do I have this, you know, this strong cardiovascular response when I'm about to do this? And I can think about it from a psychological basis, and we think, well, how did that become programmed in when it may not be adaptive, right? It's functional. It helps us fight that tiger. And as you say, yeah. then we go back to the village, and there's not a tiger in my village supermarket or whatever it is. But some people will have the same magnitude and duration of response as though there really is a tiger when they just think about it. Other people are like, no, I know there's not a tiger here. I'm good. I'm solid. I'm recovered. I could probably take that tiger tomorrow. Other people, it'll come to them and they'll have that same response whether or not the situation is still happening.
0: Is this something that is predictable? By the timing of when it happens because you've said so far things like things can occur during pregnancy things can occur in childhood to adolescence what about adolescence into adulthood these are totally different periods of life and then in later life people are perhaps more set and more resilient to these stresses occurring but can you pin down oh a stress happened when someone was zero to four this is more likely to impact this. Is there any examples of specific time periods where one part of our psychology might be more vulnerable than others?
1: Um, Well, I'm... (laughs) i have no um balance view on this because of course i'm going to say adolescence and puberty yeah, <laughs> it, yeah you know but it certainly happens there's there's certain periods of life which we used to describe as critical and now we describe as sensitive because you know that and that shift in language is important because critical means that if you miss the window to develop during that time closed and you're done when we say sensitive we mean that people are going to be more responsive so fetal programming absolutely the first kind of thousand days so infancy when you know the, say for example the the hypothalamic-pituitary-adrenal axis, or what we think about as the cortisol stress system, is being programmed. And now it turns out that in the second decade, you know, the second chance in the second decade that that can be is more sensitive. Then, and that sensitivity during adolescence and puberty comes from that alignment in time of really profound social change and psychological development. So, you know, the person's ability to to recognize their emotions, to reflect upon things. Children don't really have that capacity in the same way as an adult. Adolescents are somewhere in between. They're learning how to do it. It's underpinned by those, you know, those biological changes of brain maturation and so on. So when you have that, I was going to say perfect storm, but it's, it's not really a storm. I wish there was a lovely phrasing for it, but this combination of brain change, you know, hormonal change, social change, psychological change, that's a period of sensitivity. Because the the experience that you have, your ability to understand it varies. And it doesn't just vary from one 14-year-old, you know, from 14 to 15 to 16-year-olds. It would vary amongst people who are all 14 because they will be developing at different kinds of um, stages, you know, rooted in other things such as genetics. So there are sensitive periods, but recent work in the last five years has indicated that those, those periods of sensitivity are also periods of sensitivity to where positive change may happen. So for someone who's entered adolescence with a life history of adversity, for example, who is what we might say is hyperreactive to stress and has a hyper, you know, kind of a very high biological response, can be reprogrammed or their stress system can be reprogrammed. But that can only happen in a nurturing environment. It can only happen with effort. The person has to be supported to recognize that the ways that they might have to respond to stress aren't supportive of a long and happy life. And it's easier to do that when you say, like, oh, I noticed when you're under pressure, you become really aggressive and angry. That's an emotion we can talk about. Or I noticed that when you're feeling under pressure and when you're stressed, you do this in the classroom. Their behaviors, their emotions, we can identify this. But what do we do when we can't see what's going on under the skin? You know, it's only in research studies that we can say, well, that child has this profile of cortisol change and this profile of change in their immune system and change, you know, change in their levels of inflammation. Most people don't know that. We only know it when people are in our research studies. And then we have to tie that to understand their psychological and physical health. It's an enormous challenge facing us.
0: There's a million different biological and psychological factors that could all be intermingling and all of that. And uh, that's not to mention, and I can't help myself, but sex differences mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Because when you're tying that in, uh, and if you take pu- puberty as an example, it's happening earlier in women. And then puberty has all of these different social factors that come into play after puberty. But men and women are at different stages, right? They're at different stages of maybe brain maturation. And would that put men and women at different risks at different times? Like, would that contribute to sex differences we see in mental
1: it's going to be for anyone listening. I'm going to say it's more complex than I'm about to say, so I encourage people to read this. You know, I mean, you could spend days and days talking about sex differences. I know Andrew and like we know that you know there's some very um, compelling evidence, for example, to suggest that girls and boys and men and women have different vulnerabilities to mental health difficulties and also to physical health. You know, both positive or you know both positive physical health and and people who might be more at risk of certain outcomes. But for girls, say that risk begins earlier so for example their risk of depression anxiety has been shown to peak at around 13 related to the stage of puberty that they're at and that doesn't happen for boys it's not just that their peak is a little later driven by those changes in the brain driven by those changes that you know being pushed through by puberty but it's people are experiencing these biological changes these changes that have their origins in biology in a social context so for girls the vulnerability, for example, to depression or anxiety has some of its origins in the the changes that are going on that we can link back to, you know, changes in estradiol and changes in in other hormones, but also changes in their body, which prompts a change in their social context. So as a girl goes into puberty, for example, she's experiencing very typical, very normal changes in all the, you know, the biological things that are going on. But the social response from her family, from her friends, from the teachers, from everyone around her signals to her that something is going on. And the way cultures often work is that physical maturation is seen as potentially risky. It may draw unwanted or unmanageable attention, you know, from a euphemism of romantic partners, but may lead to peer exclusion or inclusion. It has all of these knock-on effects because of the physical expression of the biological change of puberty. It happens very differently for boys, and that is a sex difference that emerges as you know this is when we get into the tension between sex and gender like it's driven by a sex difference but gender role and gender role stereotypes determine the social response to it the kind of increased vulnerability for girls you know at the age of 13 for depression and anxiety and that difference you know it holds across the life course it's rooted in differences in estradiol and and how the brain you know what's going on there but but it really is brought to fruition often by the social aspects.
0: You hear it so often, and it's interesting to think of it because whilst puberty is such a, a big moment, like you said, it's not just puberty. It's it, There is that cultural aspect as well that could influence it. And there's a ton of other factors at play, but it's interesting to think of puberty as one part of the full Model that could be contributing to these sex differences in mental health
1: yeah and I think we're just at the beginning of this I mean some of the work um, we're, I'm working on a project now where we're doing a historical perspective of puberty across the ages um, to illustrate that it's not just the timing of puberty that's changing it's how what the social context um is so we're going to be looking at for example about you know, some someone who moved through puberty say in the 80s in in australia i'm thinking about a show a movie called the puberty blues i'm sure you don't know it but um <laughs> representative of my childhood and then looking for example at, at children who who moved through puberty during the dutch famine children who moved through puberty you know kind of through medieval times how what that signaled to their environment. How the timing of that, did it happen when they're fifteen or sixteen? What is their capacity to understand it when they're sixteen and the changes in their body than when they're eleven and ten? So and that's that's even without getting into, you know, how puberty programs people for, for metabolic changes that will persist across the life course.
0: That's mad. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: It's really exciting, but sometimes I take a step back and I think. It is really exciting, such a weird word to use, but it's mind blowing when you and I both are fascinated by this, and we get to make it our part of our work life to try and tease out what matters when and how and these things. And it's um, and these things have meaning; they have meaning for the individual physical health, you know, for how they're going to age, and as well as their mental health. We're a long way from understanding it, so it's an exciting time to work in this area
0: yeah i i love it i i love this kind of work uh i'd say anyone who listens to this podcast is absolutely sick of me talking about precision medicine or stratified or take sick of it completely sick of it i'm sure they
1: love it yeah
0: (laughs) just i i am just obsessed with the idea of taking the attention away from a disease or something, and to like that individual difference and how the disease interacts with the individual, whilst also completely overwhelmed at the science yeah. of this is completely unattainable.
1: It's <laughs> that tightrope of this is thrilling, this is overwhelming, this is fantastic, this is terrifying. <laughs>
0: yeah, it it really really is. Uh, I I feel like my PhD to date has been like this is amazing.
1: What does it mean? <laughs> Do you know there was um I and I think this, this really is the next big bit of work. There was um or a a researcher, um Dirk Hellhammer, who I we often talk about as being kind of the grandfather of stress research, or at least cortisol stress. And um in the years before he passed, he passed away a couple of years ago, but he he had been doing work. You know, it's kind of a culmination I think of his life work at saying that could we could we use biological responses people's behaviour and to give a more refined diagnosis and therefore treatment for depression or anxiety so he developed this um it was only you know it was in the very early stages before um before he passed away but but he would have people collecting saliva to to look at their cortisol levels and look at their levels of other hormones he would have a blood test done where he'd look at their levels of inflammation he'd have them do some very short very you know straightforward measures of psychological health and do a couple of days of of measurement of their behavior. And it's kind of like on this chart, this rubric, depending on their profile there, they would get a diagnosis of, now I'm not saying I agree with this, but this is the stage where, like, well, talk therapy will be best for this person. This person definitely, this is something where pharmaceuticals are needed. This person would benefit by getting their sleep in order. (laughs) Do you know? Like it's those kinds of, when we talk about personalized medicine, this is what we're talking about. And and we're a long way from, you know, like we're a long way from his idea of being made real and being made effective, but really innovative and really indicates the direction that we might go in if we can understand stress. And if we can start talking about it with more precision and doing much more, I guess, you know, measures at the doctor's door and, and before people get to that
0: Absolutely. Stage. I think I I love that direction. I love the direction that it's all going, yeah. even though it's so far out of reach. And all, just even to think of the GDPR problems yeah. alone. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that, that, Yeah, I should say, like he did that in Germany, so we'd have a different challenge. in, you know, depending yeah. on when you know things are coherent or you know all the systems are coordinated, but but um, yeah, it's an ex- it's an exciting time, exciting time. I think we need to do the basic research. A lot of work to be done in the basic research, but bearing in mind that. Someday, like surely for all of us, someday is not just like to be fascinated by things, it's to make a difference, you know, to think about that child, that teenager, that person, that family might have better support or may be able to mitigate or avoid poor, having poor outcomes, if we understand more about how sex differences might play into stress responses, which might play into their behaviors at school, it's all the fascinating web of life.
0: And I think that's a brilliant place to close. Thank you so, so much for everything. That was super, super interesting. Uh, A huge thanks to you, Dr. Samantha Dockery.
1: Well, thank you very much, Andrew. Um, Thank you very much for asking me on. I know this is a very, very popular podcast. So I have to say that just beforehand, I was thinking, you're not stressed, Samantha. This is an emotional rally. You're excited. (laughs) A bit of relabeling, a bit of psychological, like you're not stressed about doing this recording. Plus, Andrew is fantastic. And Andrew is great. You're going to be fine. So thank you so much. It was being really you're too enjoyable. Fine. Thank you. <laughs> this is the end of the podcast.
0: We hope you enjoyed your time. If you're feeling generous and you're not completely skinned, why don't you give us some of your money? Join our Patreon. Join our bay tree. Join our bay.